when you're dealing with economic policy in general and certainly macroeconomic policy in particular, while the causal chains are much longer, the impacts can be much greater. A doctor can make an immense difference in the life of a single patient. An economist who makes a contribution that lowers the unemployment rate by one-tenth of one percent for one month is enabling 150,000 people to continue to have the dignity of work and of being seen at work by their families. Hank, it's a mistake to think that markets are always right. It's also a mistake to ignore the signals they send. Absolutely. And when markets are sending a signal, it behooves economists and analysts and people who care about public policy to think about that signal. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Larry Summers. Larry is a Charles W. Elliott University professor and president emeritus of Harvard University. During the past three decades, he has served in a series of senior policy positions in Washington, D.C., including 71st Secretary of Treasury for President Bill Clinton, Director of the National Economic Council for President Barack Obama, and Vice President of Development Economics and Chief Economist of the World Bank. He's an economic superstar and a big and careful thinker with creative ideas on a wide range of topics. For those who care about policymaking, he's always worth listening to and learning from. Larry, welcome to the podcast. You've been a dominant voice in the nation's economic conversation this past year, and I'm grateful that you're injecting some good sense into the current debate. We'll get to all that a little later, but first, let's start with you. Tell our listeners a bit about the young Larry Summers. You come from a distinguished family of economists. What did you learn from them? How did your upbringing shape your approach to economics and your basic view of the world? Hank, there, there were many economists in my uh, in my family. My mother and father were both professors of economics at Penn and Two of my uncles were very distinguished uh, econ- uh, economists, uh, Paul Samuelson and Ken Ara. So there was a certain amount of it uh, in the air as I was uh, growing up. And certainly there was a very strong belief in thinking things through and in uh, analyzing them. I wrote on one of my college essays, that while most children were taught to believe in God, I came to believe in the power of systems analysis. And uh, that captures something about uh, an upbringing that was in most respects uh, normal, but really did regard the question of when you said something, one of my parents would say, well, how would you decide whether that was really true? Or how would you go about measuring uh, those kinds of uh, things? I thought originally that I wanted to be a mathematician or a physicist, 
And then I got to MIT and I saw what the best in mathematics and physics were uh, like. And I found that economics combined my desire to be very analytical in everything I did, to look at data, to work with mathematical models with what I also cared a lot about, which was public policy and trying to make the world a better place. So by the time I was a college sophomore, I had settled on economics as what I wanted to do. And so that's kind of how I got to doing what I, what I do. It was the combination of uh, the analytical and the working to make the world a better place uh, that got me into uh, economics. And I'm really glad I made the choice that I did. You know, it's been a period where the influence of economics on everything from antitrust uh, to monetary policy and everything from the environment to global health has uh, really increased substantially. So I feel like I've been lucky to have come of age at a time when economics in the United States and around the world was uh, very much spreading its wings. You sure did. You know, someone, I was an English major and I really didn't even enjoy my economics classes in college, but I first really became aware of you when I was running Goldman Sachs. You might remember, Larry, when I would ask you to come and speak to the partners. And what we all loved about you was you could ask you any question on any topic and you brought a keen analytical approach to it. And you, you the other thing, you always had a point of view, right? You weren't afraid to take a position and, and to analyze it. Now, you went on to become one of the youngest tenured professors in Harvard's history at the age of 28. Around the same time, you served on the staff of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Reagan, even though you were and are a Democrat. Talk about the shift from the academy to Washington. What did you learn about policymaking during this early stint at the White House? I think there are a few things that I've learned. The first is that as a professor, the worst thing you can do, the greatest sin you can commit is to sign your name to something you didn't write yourself. In Washington, it's a measure of effectiveness to do so as frequently as possible. Another thing I learned was uh, that as a professor working on a research problem, if the problem is too hard, what you do is you start working on a different problem that you think you can solve. In government, as you found out during the financial crisis, Hank, you don't have anything like uh, that luxury. A third thing I learned in Washington was that the problems were a lot more complex than I realized before I got there. I was focused always on certain aspects of the problem that came out of my economic uh, model, but there were many other dimensions of the problems, uh, of course, the political, but also the ways in which uh, changes disrupted actual people's lives. And I think if I 
have been relatively successful uh, as an academic goes to Washington. One of the reasons is that I've tried hard to sympathetically and understand the considerations of non-economists rather than to try to just explain why they're unimportant relative to the things that economic uh, models emphasize. And I guess the last thing I learned, and it really confirmed my decision to be an economist, was that when you're dealing with economic policy in general, and certainly macroeconomic policy in particular, while the causal chains are much longer, the impacts can be much greater. A doctor can make an immense difference in the life of a single patient or in the life of a set of uh, patients. An economist who makes a contribution that lowers the unemployment rate by one-tenth of 1% for one month is enabling 150,000 people to continue to have the dignity of work and of being seen at work uh, by their families. And so the leverage and importance of getting better in economic uh, aspects is something that has uh, always seemed immensely important uh, to me. You know, the, the thing you said a lot, what you said really resonates with me. But it was interesting, during the financial crisis, the academic economists I talked to, none of them were useful to me because they, I, I'm sure a number of them were very right about the things they were saying. And I think if their research, I think, can make a big difference. But in terms of dealing with what I need to deal with right then and there, they all had their models and they were purists. And the other thing is, as I said to people, I thought I was very pragmatic. I'd been in Washington early, then I came back as Treasury Secretary. But boy, did your, the first thing you said resonate. There is no low-hanging fruit in Washington, right? Some things are analytically simple, but they're politically complex, right? It just isn't. Now, you know, I've always said, Hank, that I've kind of lived my life back and forth between Washington and uh, Harvard. And my attitude is that when I'm in Washington, my job is to take the things that are analytically low-hanging fruit and figure out how to do as much of them as you can politically. And when I'm at Harvard, my job is not to try to kibitz on the political process because I don't have nearly the visibility into it that people in Washington do. My job is to think about the problems that are over the horizon or to think about things that are conceptually important and can influence policy over time. So I've tried to have quite different um, focuses of concern when in government and when out of government. That makes great sense. Now I'm gonna ask you something that I think you got into early on when you talk about why you you know, you, you are glad you went into a career in economics. Uh, as you said, the economic landscape has changed in some dr dramatic ways since the 80s. And many old paradigms seem to be thrown out the window. You've been a driving force for a lot of this change. 
What are the biggest shifts you've seen in the economics world in the last 10 to 20 years and what has caused them? I think that over moderate time spans, what's happening with technology and what's happening with thinking are dominantly important. And especially changes that are brought about by technology. And I think that that has been a major determinant of the increases in inequality that we have seen. I think it has been a major determinant of something I've studied quite extensively, the fact that normal levels of interest rates are much lower than uh, they used to be. When Harvard recruited me from MIT in 1982, a big part of what they offered was a 9% mortgage. And at the time, that seemed like an incredible deal to me, um, rather than the 13% uh, mortgage I could get at the uh, bank. I could not have ever imagined that someday I would be refinancing a house at a mortgage uh, below uh, 3%. A third difference, uh, is that's related to the technological change, whether it's the container ship or the smart uh, phone, is the much greater degree of global integration uh, that we have. Uh, I remember in uh, 1991, when I was uh, the chief economist of the World Bank, I got a call from our mutual friend, Bob Rubin, who had a question which he thought I would probably know the answer to because I was at uh, the World Bank. His question was that his co-head of Goldman Sachs was taking a trip to China. And Bob wondered whether it would be possible to have phone conversations with Steve Friedman while Steve Friedman was in China. And I said, yeah, it would be actually, um, but it wouldn't have been six years before that. And it, says something about the way in which uh, the world has changed that someone as sophisticated as Bob could have doubted whether you could talk on the phone uh, to China when today you and I live in a world where we, we don't uh, think about a difference between an international phone call and a domestic phone call. So there's a profound difference uh, that's due to uh, globalization. Yeah, now, now, now we ask ourselves whether it's possible to have a secure conversation. Secure, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. And the, the fourth big change, which is also driven by uh, technology, which I think people think less about, is the big change in relative prices. If you look at the consumer price index, which measures the price of each good for different time periods, they're all set at 100 in 1983. The consumer price index for a day in a hospital or a year in a college is now at about 600. The consumer price index for a television set is now below six. And so the relative price of those goods 
has changed by a factor of a, a factor of uh, 100. What I think all these things have in common is that the Adam Smith widget economy is less the economy that we live in and that we live in an economy where we're gonna have, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's good or you think it's bad, there's gonna be a much larger role uh, for government because government buys things that are much more like healthcare than like television sets, because government has responsibility for addressing the social consequences of inequality, because those low interest rates are ultimately telling us that we've got so many people who want to save relative to the number of people who want to put money to work building factories and the like, and that gap has to be closed. All of these things point up a greater need for something to coordinate and influence uh, the uh, marketplace. That's not some kind of liberal judgment or some kind of anti-conservative judgment. It's just a judgment that however you thought about the public sector and the private sector 40 years ago, the sets of changes that have taken place structurally are gonna necessitate more reliance on the public sector. I think very well said, and I agree with that assessment. So let's go to today. You've worked closely with President Biden in the past. Many on his economics team are your former students or protégés. Larry, you and a number of your colleagues in the Obama administration have freely acknowledged that the political obstacles in Congress constrained 2009 fiscal stimulus below the optimum level, and this hindered our economic recovery. You know, and, and when I was there earlier, your stimulus greatly exceeded what we were able to do. And, but today, you believe we've erred in the opposite direction with massive COVID recovery spending programs, and the budget estimates for the three and a half trillion dollar anti-poverty climate and healthcare bill currently being debated in Congress. Talk about this. This is a huge issue. So Hank, just to dimension, in 2009, the GDP gap as we saw it was going to be six or 8% of GDP. And we did a fiscal stimulus that was around half of that, three or 4% of GDP that was gonna get spent in uh, 2009. In 2021, we were looking at the beginning of the year at a GDP gap that was gonna average perhaps 2% of GDP. And we did fiscal stimulus that was perhaps on the order of 13 or 14% of GDP. So relative to the gap, the stimulus in 2021 is 10 times as large. You can quibble with that calculation, maybe it's only five times as large, but it's not a little larger, it's not twice as large, it's five to 10 times as large. And I supported everything that was done in the immediate emergency 
of uh, 2020, the spring of 2020, as the economy was going over a cliff with COVID. By the beginning of this year, it seemed to me clear that we needed to think about the size of the bathtub and the rate at which water was flowing into the bathtub. If you looked at wages and salaries, wages and salary income of workers were running $30 billion a month below normal at the beginning of this year, below trend. And that $30 billion figure was falling through the year. So you might say you wanted to fill that gap. That would have been a good thing to have uh, done. Our combined fiscal stimulus programs approached $3 trillion. That's $250 billion a month. It seemed to me that the risks were immense, that that would cause the bathtub to overflow, cause the economy to overheat. That's the view I expressed in January and February. It was magnified by the sense that the Fed has its foot harder on the accelerator than any, federal, than any Fed ever has. And by the fact that households had built up a ton of money because of all the restaurant meals they couldn't take out, they couldn't go to last summer and the vacations they couldn't uh, take and the generous tax credits they had received. So you had a savings overhang, you had the monetary policy guns blazing, and you had fiscal policy way in excess of any concept of the gap. So it seemed to me that it was kind of predictable that you'd overheat the economy with consequent risks. I think that's what's happened. I think that, yes, of course, when inflation, core CPI inflation ran at above 10% during the uh, second quarter of this year. No question that lots of that is transitory. But I think every reason to fear that the underlying rate of inflation has now risen to a level well above 2% that is the target the Fed has set. Take another example. We've seen house prices go up about 18%. I saw a statistic yesterday that rents, when a new tenant comes into an apartment, on average, the rent is going up 17%. None of that has so far been reflected in any abnormal inflation in the indices. So much the worse for the indices. Either that's coming, and I think that's true, or the indices understate uh, inflation. So I think we're running a real inflation risk. That does not mean that the president is wrong in emphasizing the importance of public investment. But that does mean that we need to be rigorous about doing things that will increase supply as we invest trillions of dollars. And we need to pay for those investments. We need to pay for those investments with taxes and with taxes that are current 
with the investment so that they're reducing the level of demand. I think we are running a reckless macroeconomic uh, experiment with a substantial risk that will recreate the kind of stagflation we saw at points in uh, the 1970s and that will ultimately necessitate some kind of dramatic act like the uh, Volcker uh, recession. I think there is a risk that in order to preempt uh, inflation, we will take monetary actions that will be problematic uh, in their impacts. I hope we will somehow find our, find our way through and the people who believe that if you just create more demand, you'll get more supply and inflation can't accelerate will turn out to be right. And I don't preclude the possibility that they are right, but it seems to me we are taking um, an immense set of risks in the path that we are pursuing. So Larry, let me get to the, uh, the, the twin risk or the, the related risk that you've talked a lot about. You believe the Fed is pursuing overly easy policies and are very worried about the consequences. Why? So look, I think there's people talk about this QE just in terms of the accelerator and the brake. And they go, you know, the economy needs the accelerator. We can only take our foot off the accelerator slowly. If we hit the brake too hard, we'll have a problem. That's an aspect of it. But I think it's helpful to look at um, these so-called quantitative easing policies a little bit more directly in terms of their immediate effects. And there are two that worry me. The first is that what is QE? QE is, as you know, Hank, is the Fed in effect issues money. What that really is, is uh, deposits that banks hold at the Fed and pay interest, pay interest at a rate that floats every day. And then they buy long-term bonds. So think about what that means for you or me as taxpayers. It means that the federal government, which is what we finance, has just decided to issue a lot more short-term debt and to reduce its long-term debt. It's kind of like a homeowner who at this moment decides to trade in their long-term mortgage for a floating rate mortgage. Well, I don't know why anybody right now who had the opportunity to have a 10-year 1.3% mortgage or a 30-year 1.9% mortgage would try to trade that in for floating rate anything, much less to do that on a scale of $120 billion um, a month. There's another aspect to it. Let's assume that you wanted to print a lot more money and buy things with it. What should you buy? 
you could buy teachers for schools. You could buy supplies to respond to the next public health emergency. Of all the things to buy, it's hard for me to imagine a less sensible one to buy than mortgages at a time when the house, housing market is booming. In general, it's hard for me to understand why you would want to be making a massive set of purchases of uh, financial assets. Most people don't own any financial assets. And so when you buy up financial assets, you are helping the people who already own financial assets, who are the people who are already the most fortunate uh, in our society. I don't want to compare myself to you, but in this regard, but you and I are going to do just fine no matter what happens. We do not need the government propping up the value of the assets we hold. We really don't. And so it seems to me that if we were going to be doing something to hit the accelerator, and I don't think we should, I don't think this is the right thing to do. Was QE the right thing to do when the markets were in complete chaos and breaking down and nothing could trade and the financial system might have been in danger of collapsing as it was in April of uh, 2020 after COVID? Yeah, then it was the right thing to do. Was QE the right thing to do when Ben Bernanke uh, did it with your support and cooperation in response to the financial crisis? Yes, yes it was. But is a conscious policy of borrowing short in order to buy long-term financial assets a sensible thing for the American economy right now? I really think it's very misguided. And I think the only question is in a way the same question as the Afghanistan question, which is we're in the midst of an unsustainable long run thing that doesn't work. How do we get ourselves out of it as with as little disruption as possible? And that's a very delicate uh, question, but I'd like to hear the Federal Reserve recognizing the problematic aspects of QE. I'd like to hear the Federal Reserve recognizing that we have real risks in terms of inflation. And I think all of that is what we need to do to set the stage for the kinds of adjustments that are going to be necessary. The longer we wait, the harder it's going to be. It sure is. And that is going to be a major, major issue for the Federal Reserve to deal with over the next couple of years. Now, I want to get to secular stagnation, because you've talked about this for some time. What is secular stagnation? And are you still, after COVID, worried about it? You, you indicated you are, and you've given us a little bit on that, but I'd like to hear you talk more about secular stagnation. Explain it and explain what your worries are today, Larry. Sure, Hank. Uh, secular stagnation was an idea that became, that was very fashionable um, in the late 1930s, developed by a Harvard economist named uh, Alvin Hansen. Essentially, his idea was that 
for all kinds of structural reasons, there was a lot of desire to save in the economy and not a lot of desire to put money to work. And therefore interest rates fell to very low levels, but even with very low levels, you didn't have enough spending to employ everybody. And so government needed to prime the pump. And that's what he felt after many years of uh, the uh, depression. In the event, what happened was we had World War II and World War II involved massive, massive government spending, even larger than what we've seen in the last uh, year or two. And the unemployment rate fell to 2% and people weren't talking about secular stagnation. And consumers for three years weren't allowed to buy cars and they weren't allowed to buy new furniture. And so after the World War II, there was so much pent up spending that we didn't have that particular problem of secular stagnation. I thought that we were seeing a problem very much like secular stagnation uh, prior to COVID. And I think I was right about that. We had much lower interest rates than people expected. We had much bigger deficits than people expected. And we still had a much weaker economy than people expected. So when you take your foot off the brake, you shift into the highest gear, you floor the accelerator, and the car only goes 20 miles an hour, you think there's a problem with your car. And that was my diagnosis of the economy pre-COVID. Post-COVID, we're now putting so much money into the economy that this isn't the problem. But I don't know what's going to happen when this extraordinary fiscal spurt uh, ends. I'm surprised and troubled that if you look at the market from which you can see what investors expect the interest rate to be eight years from now, they expect the interest rate to be lower than the inflation rate eight years from now, even though they expect very large budget deficits eight years uh, from now. That's a scary situation because usually you'd think that if the budget deficit was gonna be very large and the interest rate was gonna be very low, you'd think that the economy was gonna be off to the off to the moon with consequent inflation risk. That's not what markets are expecting uh, right now. Are markets wrong? That's a real uh, possibility. Are we gonna have this deep problem of savings absorption where because so much of the income is going to um, people who are wealthy and spend a small fraction of it. And investment drought, because Goldman Sachs can hotel people, uh, can hotel offices and need less real estate than it used to, because you can buy a cell phone that has more computing power than a Cray supercomputer used to for $600. There's just less need for investment and is that going to create a problem of sustaining full employment? That's something I worry very much about uh, going, uh, going forward, uh, Hank. 
Yeah, Larry, you and I have both looked at markets for a long time. And we know in the short term, markets can be very wrong, right? Of course, in the long term, it all plays out. You know, that I used to say, you know, when you look at markets versus politics, you know, markets always win, but but it, it takes a while. So the fact that there that markets are looking at things that seem rather irrational now doesn't surprise me, or does it? No, that may be, and it may be that, and that would certainly be my expectation, that interest rates will end up being significantly higher than people now expect them to be. But I, I suspect you'd agree with this, uh, Hank. It's a mistake to think that markets are always right. It's also a mistake to ignore the signals they send. Absolutely. And when markets are sending a signal, it behooves economists and analysts and people who care about public policy to think about that signal. And that's what you do. You, you look at economic theory as it's, as it's developing, as you're helping change it and develop it. You, you look at markets and you look at politics. And I want to switch to another big topic and one we've talked about. So the Biden administration is focused on domestic priorities and international economic leadership seems to be put on hold. Hopefully, this is only a temporary hold. Now, you recently argued for an aggressive initiative to vaccinate the world. Why do you see this as such a big economic opportunity to demonstrate U.S. economic leadership? And what are the biggest obstacles? Hank, I just want to say, in fairness to the Biden administration, I think here in their first nine months, they, and it's really uh, enormous credit to our mutual successor, Janet Yellen, they have accomplished something very important. This agreement that has been reached to change the nature of the international corporate tax system from one where countries competed to win a race to the bottom, to one where countries cooperated to avoid a race to the bottom so that corporate profits could not escape taxation. That's an immensely important uh, agreement. And at one level, it's closing a lot of tax loopholes. At another level, it's showing that international cooperation can work uh, for the people, if you might take this, for the people of Detroit and Dusseldorf rather than the people of Davos. By You're... taxing corporations, it enables more investment in uh, meeting the needs of ordinary people. So I think that's been an important bit of uh, international leadership. On COVID and on vaccination, I would say these things. Uh, first, none of us are safe because COVID anywhere poses a risk to people everywhere. Given that the more of it there is, the more is the risk of the mutation of another strain that can be very harmful to all of us. So this is not a global altruistic project. This is forward defense of our health security at a time when COVID has killed more Americans than have been lost in all the wars since the beginning of 
uh, the 20th century by a substantial margin. Second thing uh, that I would say is that there is an immense interest for the United States in supporting a continuingly successful global system. We are seeing in Afghanistan right now the consequence of failed states. We are seeing in countries like Brazil the consequences of disillusioned, angry populations electing populist governments. Developing countries don't on their own without external assistance have the wherewithal to develop, produce, and purchase large quantities of vaccines. And we have an immense interest in their economic success and in their political success. And that depends on helping them meet these challenges. The third thing I would say is that we, and we'll get into this more a little later, I suspect, we are engaged in a global competition with China with respect to the power of our examples, our system versus their system, with respect to the kinds of alliances that we can forge. One thing that's clear at this point, the American private sector-based system produced much better vaccines much sooner than China was able to. Are we going to build on that success by being generous dispersers of what people around the world need and want most at this critical moment? Or are we going to save a few tens of billions of dollars? Trillions of dollars went into Afghanistan. The price of US leadership on pandemics globally is surely measured in the tens of billion dollars a year for the next uh, few uh, years for an issue where the stakes are way into uh, the trillions of dollars. It's not just COVID. No one should think after Ebola, after MERS, after SARS, after N1H1, after AIDS, after COVID, that this is the last pandemic or that we can be confident that this is the worst pandemic. The legacy of the way we respond here needs to be capacity for genetic surveillance, capacity for testing, capacity for developing new vaccines, capacity for getting those vaccines in uh, to arms. I wrote a paper a few years ago that I think looks kind of prescient right now in which uh, my colleagues and I argued that in a present value sense, the risks associated with pandemic were comparable to the risks associated with uh, global climate change. And yet 
there has been so much more focus and concern, not enough, and certainly not to great enough effect around uh, global climate change. So I think that the United States should be trying to show that it can cooperate with others by working with others to shape a huge global response to this emergency and show the kind of generosity and vision that we displayed when we launched the Marshall Plan, when we sent a man to the moon, when uh, during your time in government, uh, President Bush launched the PEPFAR initiative that basically brought AIDS under control uh, in uh, Africa. And I think it's just an immense opportunity uh, waiting to be seized. There will be people who say, until every American is vaccinated, why are we sending vaccines to Ghana? And the answer is we have enough vaccine and enough capacity, particularly if we produced on a wartime uh, basis to meet the needs of every American who will, who wants vaccine and to make a far, far greater effort to the rest of the world. So the opportunity is before us and we're obviously the foreign policy uh, community and the foreign policy, everything is uh, focused on or has been focused on Afghanistan, but that won't be forever. And I hope we can turn our attention uh, to uh, this pandemic uh, threat issue, which I think is so important economically, morally, and strategically. Yeah, and as I've, I've heard you emphasize and that if we did something that was truly big, it would be something that could be remembered for a long, long time. It would really mark uh, this- In the way that the Marshall Plan or the man or, or the man on the moon was. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. So now we're going to uh, talk about US-China. You and I share an interest in US-China relations, you know, I enjoy talking with you about it. How do you view the US-China challenge? What could we be getting wrong? And what risks do you see with our present policies with regard to China? Spasmodic truculence and mercantilist aggression <laughs> are understandable responses to problematic practices, they do not, in my view, represent a strategy. The essence of strategy, Hank, is, from my perspective, three things. You have to figure out what you want. You have to figure out what leverage you have to get what you want, understanding the thought process of your counterpart, and you have to think about what concessions you're prepared to make in order to get what you want. Too frequently, the American way of strategy is the first, to focus on, to confuse a strategy with a wish list. And we have an immense wish list with respect to China. 
But too many of the conversations are like a football team running its plays without a defense where it's kind of easy. You kind of just say how it's going to be and you just go and do it. But unfortunately, China is there and what they think and how they will respond and what they want are immensely important. It is not denying the legitimacy or rightness of our concerns to raise challenges about the pragmatic effectiveness of proposed policies. And it seems to me we need to be much, much more careful than the prevailing dialogue in Washington uh, now is to think strategically about how the Chinese system will uh, respond. China has huge domestic uh, challenges. It has huge uh, economic challenges. Uh, challenges. It has what people refer to as uh, the middle income uh, trap uh, challenge. How will it be able to enjoy this fantastic economic growth for another uh, decade, for another two decades, till Xi Jinping's sacred 100th anniversary of the Communist Party in uh, Communist takeover in uh, 2049. The danger, the great danger for us is that they will achieve unity by agreeing on the threat that we represent. That they will enjoy hostility to the United States and become much more hostile to the United States. You know, there is something to the question when they say, how many countries have we invaded in the last uh, 40 uh, years? How many drone strikes have we launched against people in, uh, other, uh, in uh, other countries? So I think we need to move from a policy of unity achieved through indignation and uh, spasmodic response to a policy that focuses on um, what is achievable and best pursues our uh, most important uh, interests. I think we can do that. I think for the most part, we pursued such a policy uh, during, uh, the Cold, during the Cold War. I think the reason why President Eisenhower, I certainly never would have dreamt of this growing up in my uh, liberal democratic academic household as a child, if you had said to me or my parents in 1967, that a poll of historians in 2021 would rank President Eisenhower, our fifth greatest president over a 250 year period, they would have been incredulous and indignant. 
And yet that is what the recent C-SPAN uh, survey concluded. I don't know whether it's exactly right or, uh, or not. It kind of surprises me, but it makes the point that his restraint, that we were not going to challenge the Soviet Union by becoming more like the Soviet Union, that we were not going to respond to all things we didn't like in the most aggressive way possible, kept the world stable and peaceful and enabled the American people uh, to uh, flourish. And I hope a little bit more of that realistic, pragmatic uh, orientation can come through our policy. You know, Hank, I think there is a very important choice that the United States is uh, going to make in the next uh, six weeks. We're gonna set some other priority beyond Afghanistan for foreign policy. Is it gonna be puffing up our chests and saying a bunch of stuff about how we're gonna deny this technology and that technology to China and how we're gonna prevent this kind of subsidy in China and try to remake uh, Chinese society? Or is it going to be the kind of globalist expansionist building on our strengths approach uh, that I talked about in answer to your question about COVID. And God, I sure hope it's the second because I think the, the opportunity there is great and the risks on the other side are very, very large. Uh, boy, Larry, I'm in uh, radical agreement with you. And, uh, you know, and when you talk about being pragmatic, being realistic about China, we, we also need to think in terms of our allies, because I don't see any of our allies that don't want an economic relationship with China. And so if we try to make them choose, we're not going to like where they come out. So, I, I, you know, but unfortunately, the politics is driving in the other way, because that's the one area in Washington where there is bipartisan agreement. And let's see how hard we can hit China. And I think in, in instances where we try to punish China, where we're going to be punishing ourselves. And uh, that's the danger. So I, I think you said it very well. Now, I want to go now to an area where you've spent a lot of your life, as you said, you've gone back and forth between Washington and Harvard. So let's talk about the academy. As a professor and as a president of Harvard, you've got a, had a great look at it. What do you see as the big challenges and opportunities facing America's great universities? And we have some really great universities. You know, Hank, higher education is America's largest export. And it's one area where I don't think there's much question that the leading institutions are American. And that is a huge thing. And it is something that's immensely important uh, that, we, uh, that we preserve. 
I'd highlight uh, three things as immense opportunities to respond to challenges in American universities. The first is scale. The world wants and needs and craves education. It's now possible to teach 100,000 students at once using technology. And not only that, it's possible to do that with more rather than less personalization. When I sit in a lecture, I don't get to ask, ask the lecturer to repeat it if my mind wanders for a minute. I don't get to turn it on higher speed or lower speed as my needs warrant. But when I watch a lecture on video, I have exactly that kind of opportunity. And so America's great universities are going to have to decide whether they want to have, and they would hate both these analogies, the Augusta mentality or the Coca-Cola mentality. Augusta, the golf club, defines its greatness by the exquisiteness of its experience and by its exclusivity, by how many want to be there, but how few can be let in. The mentality of Coca-Cola or any number of great other great companies is they define their greatness by their scale and by the number of people that they are able to reach and the number of people they are able to satisfy, entertain, help, enlighten, whatever it is, depending on the company. And America's great universities have increasingly developed a mentality that in a sense is the Augusta mentality. Of course, they do wonderful things. And I was very proud of what I did when I was president of Harvard in terms of providing special scholarships and in terms of enabling uh, more people to come. That's great. But the number of people they're reaching is negligible compared to the people who crave education on this planet. So I think the first challenge is to go to scale. You think about any great company, any company that was nearly as great as the Ivy League schools in 1971 would have aspired to increase its scale fivefold, tenfold, a hundredfold in the intervening 50 years. And yet the size of the classes is about the same as it was, maybe it's 25% greater, maybe it's a third greater than it was in uh, 1971. So scale is the uh, first thing um, that I would highlight and scale is the only way they can respond to the major challenge of our time, which is uh, providing opportunity 
and uh, promoting, uh, promoting equality. Second thing is they have to continue to be bastions of openness, free uh, debate, places where any idea can be put forward. And there's an increasing emphasis on comfort. And I always said to students at Harvard, if you want to be uh, comfortable, return to your childhood bedroom. If we don't make you uncomfortable with some of the books you read, some of the arguments you uh, are uh, in, some of the perspectives to which you are exposed, if we do not cause you moments of substantial doubt and reconsideration, if we don't make you think about ideas that you have previously found unacceptable, if you're not exposed to people whose values you loathe, we will have completely failed in our mission of educating you. And I worry that we are increasingly in institutions devaluing uh, that kind of debate and interaction in favor of comfort. And with it, we are, to my perspective, losing what I think is a central value in universities, which is truth. We are rejecting, in some cases, the very idea um, of uh, truth, that there are right and wrong answers to uh, questions in favor of the idea that there are only many different perspectives that have to be uh, compromised. You know, um, ideas in the literary theory of the 1980s are increasingly fashionable, and I think not very good, political ideas in the context of uh, this moment. And so I think making sure that among the many kinds of diversity that are important to promote in universities, ideological diversity is a central uh, value, is something that is very, very important uh, to create. And the third thing that I would stress is that I believe our great universities have to be crucibles of scientific progress. And I believe deeply in the power of a traditional liberal education. I believe that it will always be the case uh, that great books are at the center of what educated people uh, no, but I also believe that to be a full participant in our society, you need to know what exponential growth means. You need to know what the difference between a gene and a chromosome is. You need to have some idea of what bits and bytes are uh, all about. 
And so I think our universities need a more sympathetic orientation and some shift towards uh, an embrace of the sciences and need to make sure that all the research we're doing not be purely commercially motivated, that there be huge amounts of basic scientific research, because that's ultimately what our economic strength is going to depend on. You know, the safety that we get when you and I go to an ATM and we get our money out, we're pretty, we feel like that all is pretty secure. The reason it's secure is a set of codes. Those codes are based in research in number theory. Number theory is the most pure and abstract part of mathematics. And mathematics is the most pure and abstract part of science. And research on prime numbers is what led to those algorithms which defend our ATMs and also defend uh, the messages uh, that our president sends when he uses the hotline with uh, the Soviet premier. And so our government needs to support our universities in that vitally important scientific enterprise. For sure. And Larry, let's now move from the universities to the students. So I'd like to close by asking you to share some advice for our younger listeners, particularly for young would-be economists. What advice do you give someone beginning their studies in economics? And more broadly, what career advice do you give someone looking to make a difference in today's world? I'll give advice that I think applies to students with uh, almost any interest. Um, and that's this. The world become, becomes an ever more complicated and specialized place. And what that means is that for an individual, for a company, or for a country, success depends on two things. It depends much more on building on your own strength than compensating for your own weakness than it used to. And it depends much more on the capacity to cooperate with others than it used to. Think about what happened to the building of cars. It used to be that individual craftsmen built cars. Then large collections of people through assembly lines built cars. And the latter was much the more efficient way of uh, building cars, but it required organization and cooperation. That's what's happening in writing scientific articles. That's what's happening in carrying out economic research projects. That's what's happening in producing important pieces of software uh, innovation. That's what's happening in devising public policies 
in a more complicated world. And so my advice is to simultaneously develop your own strength, passion, and distinctive interest, and develop the capacity to cooperate and work with uh, others. That means being supportive of people who you can help. I've been successful in uh, life. Uh, it is in no small part because I've had the privilege of working with uh, people who are younger than me, like Sheryl uh, Sandberg, like uh, Tim Geithner, because I've been fortunate in the peers that I've had and because I've been remarkably fortunate in the mentors that I've had, like Marty Feldstein and uh, Bob Rubin. And because I've had a kind of clear idea of what I wanted to do and what my strength was uh, in bridging between the concern with the analytical and with cooperating to make the world a better place. And so my advice to young people is to figure out your own strength, your own passion, and develop your capacity to cooperate and work with others. And the people who do that most successfully, I think have the most uh, fulfilling and also the most contributing careers. Larry, it's amazing because that is almost exactly the advice I give to people. I say to young people, you know, you want to do something you're really going to enjoy, but you better be something you're good at. You're not going to really enjoy it unless you're good at it in today's world. So finding that and really, really developing that strength. And then secondly, and, and you can say this about almost any leader I know, there's no good leader that doesn't have the right people in the right places around them and figuring out how to cooperate and work with others. And today, I think that advice is so well taken because so many young people today, when, you know, when I'm working with them and they'll, they'll cite a problem and I say, well, you talked with the person there's a problem with. Well, I send them a text or an email. <laughs> Have you talked with them? Have you listened to them? So figuring out how to cooperate. So very well said. Larry, thank you. This has been terrific. You've covered lots of ground and given us a lot to think about, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Hank. It was great to be with you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.